0: MDMA and psilocybin, psychedelics found in magic mushrooms and ecstasy, are now said to be used on patients with mental health conditions across Australia. What
1: are what are the dangers I guess of misusing these? Are we talking fatal consequences?
0: I think physiologically, so in terms of our actual physical health, I think we're pretty safe. We can check up psychedelics will soon be used as medicine in Australia I with think a mentally, we still have people in our clinical trials at the moment have bad trips and this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, global rollout is years and years away. Why have we turned to psychedelics now? We have more people with mental health conditions than we've ever had and We've got a pharmaceutical industry that puts no money into neuroscience.
1: Why is that? Wouldn't it be in their best interest to discover new compounds? Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. You may have seen that recently the TGA, Australia's government authority that is responsible for assessing and monitoring products that are defined as therapeutic goods, moved two psychedelic drugs, MDMA and psilocybin, from Schedule 9 prohibited substances to Schedule 8 controlled medicines, with specific indications for treatment resistant depression and PTSD, respectively. To help us understand this change and the body of research looking at psychedelics and mental illnesses, we're joined today by Professor Susan Rossell. Dr. Rossell is a Professor of Cognitive Neuropsychiatry and an NHMRC Senior Research Fellow at Swinburne University, Melbourne. Her research has primarily focused on understanding the cognitive impairments involved in psychosis, mood disorders, and body image-related disorders aiming to develop new interventions for these debilitating cognitive symptoms. Over her career so far, Dr. Rossell has published over 390 peer-reviewed papers, and it's currently running Australia's largest clinical trial examining whether psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is effective for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. Suffice to say, a true expert in her field of science. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Susan Rossell. in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. You're a Senior Research Fellow at Swinburne University. Yes, that's right. um, Which, for those who are overseas... There's a campus here in Melbourne I actually used to live around the corner from there <laughs> uh, about a decade ago now beautiful area yeah and you're also a, a, a cognitive neuropsychiatrist.
0: psychiatrist I am yes what does that mean It means that I went to uni for a long time and I'm a bit of a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It means that I trained in a number of different disciplines, so I'm very interested in that brain behaviour interface and how it affects people with serious mental health disorders.
1: Right. And... I'm not going to reel off your entire bio, but you've published, I think, almost 400 peer-reviewed papers. So you've been busy. <laughs> I, I don't sit still. <laughs> uh, through through your career so far, yes, where where has most of your interest sort of lied? What kind of questions have you been interested in? And and we're going to focus in a lot today on psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Like where where in your career did you become interested in the potential role of psychedelics?
0: Sure. So I've been really interested since I started my career with people with serious mental health disorders and also specifically like the unusual phenomena that exist in serious mental health disorders, things like hallucinations, delusions, um, where did those unusual experiences and perceptions come from? And then, so that's sort of the brain behavior interface bit. And then how better can we treat those problems? Um, So I did a lot of work early in my career, which was more neuroimaging, more mechanism based research. And then as I've sort of started to understand those phenomena more, really try and use the world that we live in to better treat those um, symptoms. Um, so worked on a number of different interventions over the years brain training, novel nutraceuticals, uh, novel things that um, might not have been used in mental health conditions. So we've been doing some work with intranasal insulin and intranasal oxytocin um, and then that's when we stumbled across psychedelics as a potential uh, intervention to help people.
1: So when you say mental health conditions, mm-hmm. It's quite a broad term. Like, yeah. w- what are we talking about here?
0: So, I, I primarily in the early part of my career been, was w- was working in psychosis, schizophrenia, um, and then um, more recently turned to body image and body image disorders, which is uh, uh, you know another two-hour conversation with you. Um, uh, worked in bipolar disorder. I really do cover quite a broad spectrum of things. Um, and does
1: depression? Is that a standalone thing or it can be involved in some of those things that you just it's,
0: mentioned? It's dep- one of the reasons to become interested in depression is it's, it's a, it is its own disorder, but it is often permeates all mental health disorders. It's a, a profound, what we refer to as comorbidity. So depression, um, for example, is often one of the key reasons that people with body image disorders present to see a mental health. They don't go in and go, hey, I don't like my, the way my nose looks or I don't, I, I think there's something wrong with the way that my body is shaped. They often go and go, and I'm really depressed because they're quite ashamed of their body image right. beliefs.
1: So de- depression or these depressive symptoms are kind of the outcome of certain triggers that could be different?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, oh. it, they permeate a lot of problems.
1: How you. would you define depression?
0: So extreme sadness, despair, despondency, um, and in- inability to feel warmth and love and, 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 and happiness around, around you, um, that sense of um, emptiness.
1: A term that... Probably will come up quite a bit today is treatment-resistant yep. depression. Yeah, and specifically that might come up when we're talking about your clinical trials and others looking at psilocybin. I've been calling it psilocybin. Yes, I think psilocybin. you say it's different
0: S- uh, psilocybin. I'm British. Okay, so, okay. so either either, it, either you or. can call it psilocybin. Okay, yeah. I
1: wanted to, to clear that up. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it seems to me that the the psychedelics are in the in the case of psilocybin. being looked at as a, a sort of tool or potential therapy once other options have been explored first right so so what is treatment resistant depression i guess by definition
0: yeah, so when we were talking about treatment resistance for any mental health disorder, we could be talking about, you know, OCD or depression or anorexia. We're talking about when a person has had what we refer to as gold standard or first line interventions initially, um, and they haven't done anything for the participant or they've, they've only um, helped them a little bit and they've still got really quite high levels of symptoms. Um, when we refer to treatment resistant, they've usually taken at least two of the standard or gold standard interventions and they still have no relief.
1: Is that like SSRIs So SSRIs,
0: and SNRIs, yeah. So the, the, there's a range of different interventions. There's also the psychotherapies as well. So when... I think of people as treatment resistant, and, and this is there's no universal kind of definition. Most people would say at least two um, pharmacological interventions, and then a lot of people, like myself, also say that they need to have tried some psychotherapy for a reasonable course, which what's, would be what's but, psychotherapy. So psychotherapy is talk therapy, you know, talking, uh, and there's all different types of psychotherapy from dyna- uh, psychodynamic, which people think of as Freudian, and so going through your life histories and your trauma and delving into some of the complexities there, um, to mindfulness and or um, cognitive behavior therapy, so working through some of your everyday challenges. Um, there, there doesn't have there's no sort of fixed formulation. What psychotherapy you know we we think of when we're thinking of treatment resistance, but we do suggest that they might have engaged in at least a twelve to twenty week twenty session of psychotherapy, and it's made not that much difference.
1: But that's like the kind of best practice guidelines. Yes. Like if I was yes. to present to a psychiatrist, yes, with. They diagnosed me with depression. I hadn't seen anyone previously. I'd be going down this path of psychotherapy, yes, and maybe some of these more traditional pharmacotherapies. That's that's completely correct. And then, treatment-resistant depression could be sort of diagnosed if I don't respond to 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 any of
0: this. Yes,
1: it seems interesting that that there's no universal definition of treatment-resistant depression, given that that's an indication or. Seems like it's an indication based on some of the recent regulations.
0: It's interesting because I've just been going through this with my team, um, when we've been designing these studies. Um, There was a big study that was published last year and uh what we're talking about that so the two pharmacological interventions and the 12 to 20 weeks of psychotherapy that was in those guidelines but that's the first time that they've been published so some of the previous work on treatment resistant depression hadn't used those guidelines
1: psychedelic is going to be another term that comes up a lot yeah if someone's perhaps heard that but is not familiar with the exact definition what does that actually mean
0: Um, it's a kind of, um, a compound, I guess is the easiest way to think of it. Um, there can be all different, there are all different psychedelics. Um, some of them are in liquid form, some of them in tablet form, some of them are are in plant-based form. And it's a compound that you will take, um, that creates a disturbance from reality. Um, uh, the most common sort of colloquial term is a trip. It takes you on a bit of a journey, a journey where you might um, uh, feel like you're outside your body some of the time. You'll often get a lot of unusual bodily sensations, especially visual sensations. And you don't feel like you're in the present moment. It can be a little bit of a dreamlike experience for people. I think that that's the easiest way to describe it.
1: And I think when you say that word trip... I mean, that brings back memories when I was a teenager and my parents would often say, be careful of these drugs at these parties. You don't know what's in them. You could have a bad trip. And often they'd be talking sort of specifically to uh, MDMA or ecstasy, um, pills that are often used at raves and and parties, et cetera. Um, And so there is this kind of society-wide stigma around some of the, the use of these drugs so I think one thing that I want to try and make sure we cover today or pass through is sort of appropriate use versus misuse and clear up some of that that stigma. But if I'm, if I'm right, some of these compounds have been used. There was science looking at them 70 odd years ago. And then for whatever reason, they sort of fell out of favor. And now there seems to be a bit of a resurgence. So there's researchers like you who are legitimate researchers, um, others that, universities in Australia like Monash and overseas that are investigating the use of these compounds in in a therapeutic way and then there's also more mainstream coverage like Michael Pollan wrote a book and there's been documentaries on magic mushrooms etc so what is the history of these compounds in terms of you know 70 years ago what the science community was was doing with them why they fell out of favor and then why now are we suddenly coming back to look at
0: them There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'll see if I remember it all as we're going through. All right. So yeah, I mean they did become popular in the in the 50s and 60s, and you know, and we saw them at Woodstock, and and there's a there's a lot of press about how everyone was ta- was taking them. There were there was a reasonable um uh, sort of collection of researchers, especially in the states, who were doing work on these compounds. Um, and unfortunately, they didn't follow ethical guidelines. Um, I, I mean, I won't go into it into a great um, deal of detail, but um, essentially they were um, taking them themselves. This is their, early research. Uh, this is really early research in the 1960s. Um, essentially, uh, there, was a, there was a group of researchers um, that were given a, a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of psilocybin and LSD um, by the pharmaceutical companies to do as much research as they possibly could. It's unlike the regulated industry that we see now, and they were just given boxes of this stuff. Um, Are they both
1: manufactured? Synthesised, so synthetic versions. There there were
0: synthetic versions. um, And they just did unscrupulous science. Um, uh, They were getting absolutely, let's just be quite okay, smashed with their participants. They weren't doing anything very morally, um, um, I I, I guess, uh, in terms of safety procedures. Um, And it's a shame i mean I, I won't go into more details about that it's a shame because there was there were some people that were actually doing genuine research at the time and there was a body there was a there was a collection of researchers in canada that had actually developed a really quite clever um uh, clinic looking at people with um, alcohol use disorder and it was working really well and one of the things that was working really well and that's why i'm going to bring it into the modern day is what's referred to as the set and the set So giving these uh, compounds in very carefully set up um, clinical situations with uh, the environment was with a therapist and then using the novel experiences from the trip to help them work through their baggage and the reasons why they had developed some of these addictions in the first places. And that then then sort of move forward to modern day. And it's that certain setting of environment that we're picking up on now. Um, and then to come back to your other question, why now? Why, why have we turned to psychedelics now? Um, when I was talking to you at the beginning about my desire to um, research um, uh, interventions that aren't out there, we have a massive problem at the moment in terms of mental health conditions. We have more mental health, people with mental health conditions than we've ever had. And we've got a pharmaceutical industry that puts no money into neuroscience, um, uh, what we refer to as central nervous system drugs. There is such a little amount of money in CNS drug development in the pharmaceutical and chemistry industry at the moment, we have no new compounds even potentially coming to market.
1: Why is that? Wouldn't it be in their best interest to discover new compounds?
0: I would completely agree and I I don't know the answer to that I'm yeah. just the product sure. I'm just the product of there being no research in this for a good 20 years now and so when you're someone like me that's got this absolute desire to do things better for people with mental health conditions, we're looking outside the box. and I've been looking outside the box for my entire career because there is nothing new. Um, and that's why psychedelics, when when you look back in the history and you look back at some of these alcohol use disorder trials in the 1960s, you start to see, actually, there was something in that. And there's, you know, I'm not the only person right. that saw this. So
1: were they treating addiction, alcohol addiction? They were treating
0: addiction? Addiction, addiction, yeah, with, with psilocybin. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that answered all the bits of your question. No, it did. And it, yeah.
1: it makes sense. You're talking about wanting more tools. We so are, if we yeah. if we think about that, and you mentioned there are a lot of people with mental health conditions, yeah. what percentage of them mm-hmm. would be, quote-unquote, treatment resistant"? resistant? And therefore, do you ever feel if the science was more ethical back then yeah. and had to progress further, yeah. You know, how many people over the last 70 years could have potentially benefited from very promising therapeutic yeah,
0: I don't want to think about that <laughs> right. Yeah. no no um, so the way that I think about it is usually about a third a third a third so uh, with with current interventions current gold standard interventions that we have at the moment so a third of people seem to get completely better and, and, and they, they work and a mixture of pharmacological and talk therapies psychotherapies seem to do really well for a third of people another third of people have a fluctuating course so they may get they may they may they may get better initially and then they may relapse and and that's the that's the course of their illness and then a third of these people with treatment resistant that nothing in terms of our toolbox at the moment is working for them um yeah I do think I do think the unscrupulous science in the 1960s out of John Hopkins really set us back decades with some of these compounds yeah I do
1: are some of the fears real like what are what are the dangers I guess of misusing these are we talking fatal consequences
0: um I'm not sure fatal I, like i I f- I guess I have mixed feelings about this I think um I think physiologically so in terms of our, our actual physical health. Um, from everything that I've read about LSD and psilocybin and MDMA and on all of them, then unless they become drugs of abuse, which we know that they're not addictive because of the types of neurotransmitters they interact with, I think we're pretty safe physically with these compounds. I think mentally there is some, and this is, this is where um, really developing really vigilant um, safety guidelines is really important. So... We still have people in our clinical trials at the moment have bad trips. And I've been talking about this a lot over the last year. And this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, global rollout is years and years away, because the kind of research that we need to do is really trying to work out who's going to benefit from these treatments and, and, and maybe creating some kind of formulation Uh, which suggests these are people that are going to have bad trips and it's going to have long-lasting kind of trauma effects for them and we shouldn't recommend it to them at all.
1: So, like, being able to screen people better I'm and right. say, say exactly. Hey, you're a higher risk, risk of having a bad trip risk. because yeah. of A, B, and C, exactly. like a history of psychosis or something.
0: Yeah, like yeah. That. And psychosis is one of them. We know psychosis right. is one of them, but we we don't have a really, you know, we don't we don't have the complete formulation at the moment. And that's what I really want to do because I want to make sure that if I'm going to recommend an intervention to someone, that it actually helps them. Why Why would I recommend someone has a bad trip?
1: What is a bad trip?
0: Um, we, we've had several in our clinical trials so you've seen this. and we've seen them and, and they're pretty awful for people. Um, you know, we have had people completely, um, decompensate, um, and spend the entire day curled up in a fetal position, sobbing and in tears. Like it's frightening for them. They get overwhelming, um, like nightmares. It's like being in a nightmare. For the and
1: day. that's not necessarily dose presumably they're doing the same dose or relative to other people
0: absolutely absolutely so it's their
1: physiology it's
0: it's it's there it's uh, maybe it's and this is what we need to find out it's maybe their genetic makeup it may be something a very important trigger from their past that 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 they, they might need to work through with a lot of psychotherapy instead of doing the psychedelic psychotherapy you know we need to work these things out
1: What's the percentage of people, and this could be a hard question because it could really depend on who you're including in the trial in the first place, but what percentage of people would have a bad trip?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's too hard. I think that there's not the research out there that at the moment. You know, um, We've had one in ten at the moment. Mm-hmm. so It's not yeah. small. It's not small, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So safety is something we will explore a little bit more. You've been busy in the media being interviewed a lot recently with some of the the updates with regards to the scheduling of psilocybin and MDMA in Australia. And if if my sort of research is, if I've done it properly, um, I believe that psilocybin and MDMA have been moved from Schedule 9, which was like a prohibited use schedule to schedule eight so they can be prescribed under very specific conditions by specific people um, for specific conditions for example psilocybin for treatment resistant depression and mdma for ptsd you were contacted and interviewed and said in the sydney morning herald i think they have succumbed to pressure by lobbyists There is no long term safety data, especially for psilocybin. It's just super premature. There's just no guidelines on a whole pile of things that people are going to need to know to do this safely. Unpack this for us. Firstly, I guess, what do you mean by pressure from lobbyists?
0: So um, over the last four or five years, we have seen now, we'll talk about the psilocybin um, assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression. I think there's been like four or five major trials now around the world, some in the States, um, some with international sites, and, and, and then actually at least two from the Imperial Group in London. All fabulous results, okay? Um, You know, these people um, uh, had large groups of people, and there were effect sizes, as we talk scientifically, of two or more, so, you know, really profound effect sizes. Absolutely couldn't be happier, okay? However, we have got major issues with some of those studies, okay? Very selective patients, they're screened, that there's such a small, if you actually read, especially the Imperial studies, I think only about 5% of people that were screened to go into those studies went, actually went through and had the intervention.
1: Is that necessarily a bad thing or does it just point to a very specific population it can work in?
0: It points to a very specific population. However, if you're going to roll that out into the community, that is that type of screening's not going to
1: happen that's the fine print that people that need be, to be aware yeah, of
0: that and that's what i'm talking about in terms of global rollout if you are going to roll it out that tiny little portion of the community don't have a problem but until we start to do real world trials with real world long-term data, we are so premature and that is exactly what I'm talking about. The other thing in terms of this long-term data, so the furthest that anybody has been followed up in any of the existing research today, most of it was three months and one of the studies did six months. Now, coming back to my bad trip, Okay, so if it is one in one in 10 people, so that's 10% of them have a bad trip, how is that going to impact them long-term, okay? We don't know because nobody's done any long-term follow-up. So I know I have conflict of interest here because I am trying to do that research at the moment, but I, the reason I'm trying to do that research is because I'm trying to make sure that it's safe for people and that we can perhaps think about a more global rollout and we can think about instead of this tiny proportion of the population there might be other people that can benefit. I am trying to work out who's going to have these bad trips and who's not going to. I want to work out what the long-term safety features are. All of these things that we've been talking about today, that's what I'm talking about when I say it's premature.
1: Were you aware that the TGA was reviewing this?
0: Yes and no. Um, they've been reviewing. Uh, y- yes, they've been reviewing it for years, and and there's been several occasions where they've asked um, uh, experts, or well, they've asked anybody to comment. And apparently, they've had thousands and thousands of submissions. And I've, th- uh, and I think t- on two different occasions, I wrote, a, a, you know, a statement to this effect. I didn't know, the answer is no, I didn't know they were re-reviewing it again at the moment and, and they were actually taking it incredibly seriously. Their previous reviews have always been, this is very premature. So the fact that they changed their minds so starkly, so quickly is very, very dodgy to me.
1: Right, The I went back and looked at the, the October, because it was like... Minutes from a meeting, and it seemed like the advisory panel at that stage was actually recommending against. Absolutely, this is
0: this is what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a yes and a no. Yeah, I knew they'd been. This is what I mean. They've been reviewing it probably every six to nine months over the last four or five years, and it's always been no, no, no.
1: What about the the lobbyist angle? Like how how much impact have third parties had potentially on, on the premature change in scheduling here?
0: I think it's been profound. Um, and, 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 you know, up to a point I'm sympathetic of some of the arguments that they put forward. You know, I am sympathetic to the fact that people have chronic, debilitating treatment-resistant mental health conditions and our mental health services and, uh, and clinicians have no extra tools in their toolboxes. I am extraordinarily sympathetic. Well, that's, that's why you're doing, doing your what research. I do, yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I but think that's
1: clear that, yeah. I mean, I understand your position. You're talking here about wanting more tools, but you also want to better understand the safety.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: So it has... The scheduling has changed, and as yeah. as far as I'm aware, from July, yeah. this will be a potential option for people in yeah. this country. Yeah. From your understanding of of kind of the uh, regulations, what does this mean? How will it be rolled out? Who is it available to?
0: Uh, I'm. I mean, I'm incredibly concerned about how this is going to just function very practically, to be honest. So. and the TGA have um, actually given very mixed messages. They did a webinar the other week um, where one of the messages was, (laughs) um, you know, oh, we'll just talk to the Royal College of Psychiatrists. They've got training. No, they don't have training at all. I mean, that was one of the key messages that the TGA was giving, um, that, 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 that psychiatrists are being trained in psychedelic psychotherapy. I mean, I know hundreds of uh, psychiatrists, and I also know very key members in the executive of the Royal College, there is no training at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So
1: a psychiatrist without sort of formal training of the, presumably the procedure and the environment, you spoke about the importance of the environment, you're saying this is not something that you can just go and pick up and do?
0: No, absolutely not. So... Um, Everybody that's working in the clinical trial space in Australia at the moment have been, most of them have been to the States um, and there are some um, accredited training courses in the States. Um, There's also, um, uh, uh, you know, um, people with considerable experience. Uh, that have emigrated, say, for example, from the UK that worked in some of the UK studies that are here now. So they are the people that work on my trials. They have they have had this training overseas or they've had the um, experience working in clinical trials in the UK. Um, in terms of if you were a psychiatrist um, in your private practice or... I don't know where they would get the uh, the training at the moment. There is no accredited training in Australia, okay? And that ha- I cannot be clearer about that. There is no accredited training. And what that actually means, and this is where I talk about the feasibility issues with this, is if there's no accredited training, um, a psychiatrist is not going to be able to get um, their indemnity insurance. There's no APRA registration for any of this. So... In practice, I don't know how this is going to be rolled out from the 1st of July, because if I was a psychiatrist wanting to do this in my private practice, I have to have insurance.
1: And I've also heard some concerns from people suggesting if it's not uh, something that's widely available in particular, that there's a potential that it could be quite expensive. Oh, there's going to be.
0: uh, Yeah, I could talk to you a lot. So my my approximate calculations of this um, is uh, that it's going to cost $25,000.
1: Twenty five thousand dollars for for one treatment or for a course. It'd be
0: t- the best effects with two two doses. So th- if I talk you through from from when when a person comes in, you the the whole it's a package. It's uh, this is what I'm talking about. It's not someone signs you a prescription for psilocybin or MDMA and gives it to you and sends you away. If this is going to work and if this is going to work properly, you need to have it surrounded by the psychotherapy and use the psychedelic experience to help you work through the issues that you've got stuck with. And so, that's
1: what that's what the change in scheduling allows for. It doesn't allow for someone to get a prescription, go into a chemist, that's right. walk out with this that's and do right. it at home.
0: Yeah, that's right. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the training because if it was just a psychiatrist writing a prescription, they know how to write a prescription, okay? Okay. That's not, that, that's not the training I'm talking about here. It's, it's about sitting with, well, firstly, all the preparation sessions, how they prepare someone to go into dosing, what the person needs to unpack, what they're stuck with in the first place. Then the dosing session, working with them during the dosing session, and then putting that all back together. So the, the three parts of a psychedelic psychotherapy are called preparation, dosing and then integration there isn't that's that's what that's what we're lacking now if 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 we want universal rollout um there's very few people qualified to do it
1: so let's um i'm a patient of yours and i have treatment resistant depression i qualify for this and come in you tell me about this as an option and you say it's twenty thousand dollars and i say okay well based on the research out there How much improvement am I going to get? Are you going to cure my depression? Is it going to go away? Is this something I'm going to have to repeat every three months, six months, every year? Or is this a $20,000 one-off expense and I walk out of here without depression?
0: You know the answer to that, don't you? Because we we don't know because we don't have the research.
1: So I suspect if it is $20,000 and I'm speculating here, but i think the research that occurs will be very helpful but it will lead to a lot of people going to alternative places to do this
0: so look one of the other things that i'm really uh, i'll come back to your question in a minute but one of the other things that i've been really um uh, pioneering and wanting to do properly is 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 this equity p- equity issue so at the moment we don't have any health economics around this and we also because we don't have any um, long-term long-term data um, either efficacy data or safety data we can't say so we can't say that this is a one-off we can't say that once you do this once you know you'll be better for the rest of your life we this is these are all the things that we're trying to do some research on at the moment we're also working with um, very very senior health economists in Australia from. Monash who um, have a great deal of experience getting new interventions on the PBS I mean and that that's really if this is going to work long term that's what people like me have got to do and that's why I'm working with Kathy because if we're going to resolve the equity issue we've got to create a pool of information where we can uh, uh, look at the health economics and look at the long-term kind of efficacy. When you say long-term, yeah. you're
1: talking one, two years of data. Well, I mean,
0: ideally I'd like to do five years, but I think there's such a great need for some interventions that work at the moment. I think let's just talk about one or two years in the first instance.
1: And in the current trials that are months sort of long, yeah. what is the, what's the magnitude of effect in terms of improvement of symptoms?
0: Like for some people profound, and this is what comes back to one of the questions and one of the answers I gave you earlier. I want to work out who it works for. So we give it to the right people. Yeah, I don't want to give it to the people that get no benefit. I don't want to give it to the people because it's expensive. I don't want to give it to the people that have bad trips. I want to make sure that this is given to the people that are going to benefit.
1: And you mentioned Monash. Yes. So is it Monash and Swinburne that are kind of doing most of the research in this space? I think I've heard of Dr. Paul. Someone.
0: Yeah. So Paul. Uh, Paul and I worked together on our first trial. Um, he's 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 um he's doing some work in anxiety at the moment. So people with long-term profound anxiety. Um, there are other groups uh, in Australia. So um, uh, Stephen Bright in uh, Western Australia, he's done a lot of work on MDMA. Okay. Yeah.
1: Interesting. So let's let's double click on psilocybin a little bit more here and then perhaps we can talk a little bit about MDMA. I realise your trial is focused on psilocybin, so perhaps it makes sense to start there first. From, a, a, I guess, a molecule perspective what is this molecule and i'd love to explore sort of how it's leading to or potentially leading to some of these benefits that certain patients are experiencing
0: Yeah, so um we know it has serotonergic effects um so um so all of the um like anti the typical antidepressants that we, we that we see at the moment um that helps some people. Like I say, uh, they also have serotonergic effects. It's just the the, the, the type of um, uh, like molecule, type of serotonin that it, uh, that it binds to is slightly different, and it does so in um, a, a, a very profound way for that short period of time. So that eight hours of dose after after you've taken it. Um, so one, that's one of the reasons why we know that it doesn't have any long-term physical effects and it really um, uh, is very much concentrated on CNS, um, or so, so central nervous system effects. And what we know that it does for people is um, a, a process called opening up the brain. So imagine if you are um, someone with treatment resistant depression, you've got yourself stuck in this chronic sadness um, and all of your thoughts are very negative and um, dysphoric and you can't kind of shift yourself into a happy way of thinking. And, and and I mean, one of the other conditions that we think it works for is um, like anorexia. They get themselves stuck in, I feel fat, and they can't move Can't that, see another uh, perspective. perspective. Yeah. So it's, it, one of the things that we know that the, the psychedelic experience does is it opens up your brain to new experiences. Uh, David Knott in Imperial and Robin Carhart-Harris have done a lot of brain imaging work and they have shown that when people take psilocybin, um, we've, we have this, um, this effect called the resting state brain. So what our brain is just doing when we're just sitting there doing nothing, not when I'm talking to you now, it's obviously active because it's all my speech centers are active. So if, imagine if I was sitting here doing nothing, okay, we have this resting state brain. When you take psilocybin, that resting state brain becomes way more activated or way more connected with all the other areas of the brain. And that's what we're working with in the dosing session. We're working up with the fact that your brain is more connected with all other areas of the brain than it has been before. So we can get you out of your stuckness.
1: So this is the... the compound that's in magic mushrooms that's responsible for the the trip yes Yes. and does everyone who is exposed to this at a certain dose hallucinate or is that only something that some people will experience
0: um I think it depends on your set and your setting and it depends on your background I I mean I, I would say most people do have Visual disturbances and body disturbances to a certain degree, whether it's a full trip, I think it, that that does depend on, I think, your personality and on your life experiences. Yeah.
1: And so what we're talking about here and what would be used in Australia is like a synthetic yes. psilocybin yes. that you can make and, and standardize the dose and yes. all of that. Yes, yes. Um, but it is found in in magic mushrooms. It's interesting to think about what's its role there in, in the in the fungi. What's it doing? Is it a defence compound or?
0: I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe you know. Then the little animals only take a little bit of it and they feel so happy they yeah. go away. I right. Think. <laughs> maybe they
1: they they lose sense of where they are and they can't come back and eat it again. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, have you heard of the stone ape theory? No. 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 That uh, early or oh, apes or early humans. Found yeah. magic mushrooms, and yeah. that led to an expansion of the mind and consciousness. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's a theory that's out there. So, um, when you're when you when you have psilocybin and it has these effects mm-hmm. on the brain, mm-hmm. I guess a couple of questions here: is is that effect? Is it, how specific is that effect? Is it having other kind of effects throughout the brain? Are there any damaging... You know, you hear of other drugs like cocaine, for yeah. example, and people talk about the, the damaging effects that that could have on brain uh, physiology long-term. Yeah. What do we know about that?
0: Um, th- what I... I I guess the general kind of gist is that cocaine is is not serotonergic, it's dopaminergic and that's why we can become addicted because you become addicted to the reward and the, the huge kind of hedonistic positive rush. Um, that that is a, is a dopaminergic reward, whereas a serotonergic um, system doesn't have that addictive quality um, to it. So I, I think that, that, that that's one of the, the key reasons why these compounds, in my mind, are actually really worthwhile investigating because that, the, the addiction is, is, is not going to be part of this as a safety feature. I mean, people might get addicted to feeling happier, <laughs> but it, if if just the one experience results in happiness, you don't really need to go back and try it again um, uh, it is although you know some of the neuroethics people and 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 I know that some members of the general public are worried about that and and it is something I guess we do need to kind of think about long term but. Mm.
1: And I guess it's a different question yeah, is. around the therapeutic use and what you're yes. talking about versus, yeah. say, taking ecstasy every weekend yes, at, exactly. at a rave or a party.
0: Exactly. And exactly. what is
1: the effect on brain physiology?
0: Yeah. So as far as we know, non non damaging. It's that 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 then even in the
1: context of weekly
0: use. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm. I'm MDMA has had a controversial history in the past and I mean there were a lot of people that abused MDMA in the in the 90s I know I watched all of my friends at uni abusing MDMA um I think uh Unlike some other compounds that we saw abuse of in the 90s, like ketamine, um, the, the physiological brain effects, I think, are a little bit more controversial. And anyway, we're talking about this in the therapeutic context. So, I, I, yeah.
1: So psilocybin, though, is, will bind to the serotonin yeah. receptor. Yeah. It has different effects yes. to serotonin. Um, and how, how does that differ from MDMA?
0: Uh, MD, MDMA um, is uh, oxytocin and um, uh, has a little bit of serotonergic effect. Um, uh, the, the, one of the main things that we are using the MDMA for, though, is for the oxytocin rush to help people be more in tune with their self and their self compassion. Um, so they're quite they're quite different.
1: Right. So so the opening up of the the kind of brain and the change in perspective. Yeah. Is that more specific to psilocybin?
0: Yeah, exactly. So MDMA is a typical psychedelic. In fact, it's it's kind of not a psychedelic. Yeah. It, it's, yeah it's got a more complex profile.
1: Which... Is that why there are a lot of trials looking at it specific to PTSD, PTSD. versus treatment-resistant depression? Yeah,
0: it, um, there are there are there are a few conditions that I think would be worth investigating with um, MDMA. So some of the body image problems where people start to really hate themselves and have poor poor sort of uh, self-esteem and self-compassion. And and that's what MDMA does for us. Um, uh, PTSD, because we need to get them into a sort of a more positive mood state to work through some of the trauma. Um, And so I think different mental health conditions. Mm. Is there a
1: role, do you think, for combinations?
0: Yeah, I think one of of the main conditions that we're considering a combination for is actually um, anorexia. Interesting. Yeah. But very preliminary, you know, yeah.
1: Okay, so let's think a little bit more here about psilocybin. So you mentioned that in the trials and how this will be used is in conjunction with psychotherapy. So you uh, take psilocybin, you have the experience, then you work with a therapist to kind of make sense of that, to integrate it, and that together is what contributes to healing. Yeah. How do you separate the effect of the drug versus the effect of psychotherapy? Is that something that the clinical clinical trial that you're doing sort of allows for with the control group?
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, so um, exactly. So the, our control group has a placebo. They don't have any psychedelic experience whatsoever. Um, We have incredibly worked through psychotherapeutic models that we use for all the different mental health conditions. So it would be a different model that you would use for OCD versus, um, you know, um, treatment-resistant depression. Um, There is a little bit of the work, um, especially during the dosing session, that has to be unguided because everyone experiences the psychedelics in different ways, as we've been talking about. But in terms of integrating that experience, we have quite um, well worked up manuals. Um, I know that there are some researchers and clinicians um, worldwide that um, say it should be all unguided and but then you're like, well, how how can you be sure that you're trying to um, give the person the best psychotherapeutic models? Um, so it is a bit of a controversial area at the moment in terms of what manuals, what kind of psychotherapy, whether you use things more like mindfulness or acceptance and commitment or exposure work. There is a lot of work that still needs to be done in the community as to what the best psychotherapeutic model is. My personal opinion is it needs to be based on gold standard models
1: how much if any say does the tga have in terms of the psychotherapy component because it would it would seem if you're reviewing these studies and you are seeing benefit of it's it's not clear in in these trials how much of that is from the type of psychotherapy right yeah that would be very important yeah
0: yeah and i think I, I and this is exactly one of the reasons why we have our placebo groups um and 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 i've been very I, i've been very rigorous in the way that i've been thinking about my placebo groups some of the trials that are out there haven't thought so carefully about that and it um for for me as well when we're talking about people with treatment resistant conditions sometimes even though they have been perhaps prescribed best interventions, they perhaps haven't had great, um, you know, rapport with their therapists or they perhaps weren't given, you know, gold standard treatments. So we know when we're doing clinical trials because we are so scrutinized by our ethics boards that we have to do the best of the best and we have to have the best training for our clinicians. So we'll get to answer some of this. How much is the psychotherapy and how much is, uh, is, is the psychedelic experience? I think my gut feeling from working in this as long as I have now and from from my experience with our participants, there is something unique about the psychedelic experience that helps some people.
1: Yeah, I think I think I actually, confuse myself with the last thing that i was saying yeah so the studies will be able to show what is the independent effect of the psychedelic because yep. the placebo group's doing the psychotherapy yep. as well but the psychotherapy in these studies could still be having a treatment effect it and therefore re- if you're rolling this out into society for it to be generalizable you kind of want to understand what type, type of psychotherapy type of therapy that therapy. is, it
0: is. Yeah, yeah yeah
1: and the placebo bit yeah that's interesting because how do you how do you stop someone from knowing that they've been given the placebo given that they're going to expect to hallucinate yeah
0: so yeah and this is this is this is you know I've talked to very um very bright and intellectual colleagues about this for very many years you know what do we do for the placebo? And I mean, there are, a couple of, there are a couple of agents that people use. Um, niacin is one. It gives you the physiological kind of bodily sensations, but it doesn't you know, necessarily give you any of the visual sensations. Um, but some people report feeling really unwell um, with the niacin. So we've decided not to use niacin um other people have used very low dose psilocybin so again you start to get the bodily sensations but you don't get the full visual and you don't get the full I guess neurobiological kind of opening up of the brain um we nearly considered doing that and then and decided not to so we're just using pure placebo um and it is an issue um and you know um I think Uh, The last clinical trial that we were designing, the big 161 that we're just currently starting at the moment, I think we had over 20 hours of conversation (laughs) with, you know, extremely um, experienced clinical trialists going through all the permutations. There is no perfect answer.
1: What are the most important things with regards to setting up the environment?
0: Yeah, so... Um, we want to make sure that it's not clinical. You know, we're not going into a hospital here. We're not going into, you know, a, with a hospital bed and, you know, all very whitewashed walls. We want a friendly, warm experience that you would like to spend the day, whether you were going on a psychedelic trip or not. You know, a friendly living room with soft furnishings really important one of the things that has been really important is um uh, light you know it's a li- it's a light airy room not you know a, a no wi- not no windows um some people do prefer to have drapes or curtains at some points when it's quite intense for them but it needs to have some access to the outside world how um,
1: does the does the person experiencing this have to let go Can you resist it?
0: You can, and I think that that's when some people have bad experiences. Yeah, Um, important to see green. So our 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 treatment room, um, there's loads of beautiful trees outside. But also, I know most of the most of the um, the uh, rooms that I've seen, I've got lovely plants in and and just um, beautiful pictures. Um, um, So you know,
1: is that something to do with the the kind of mind altering? properties and a connection to nature or what? what is the? yeah
0: I think that that's what what people say but also I mean you're wanting to put people in a relaxed state of mind too you know you know if you put someone in a clinical environment they're going to feel as though they're going to be you know an observed puppet all day uh you know where where would you like to go to sit and relax and perhaps meditate all day that's that's what we're we're talking about here
1: what is exposure therapy? That comes up a bit in, in sort of some of the different papers I've read. And how is that different to kind of what we're talking about here?
0: We often use exposure therapy with OCD. Um, so for example, if you imagine that you're somebody um, that w- that has the complete urge to wash your hands all day, so what we would do with uh, with, with that person is we would stop them. So that would be the exposure when they get the urge to go and wash their hands, we wouldn't let them and not only wouldn't we let them wash their hands, um, I might go and get a plant and put soil all over their hands and then not let them wash their hands, you know, and see that they're not going to catch any contagious disease, you know, just by sitting there with soil on your hands for an hour. And so one of the arguments with the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is we're exposing them to their inner demons. And um, this freeing up and opening of the brain is allowing them access to things that people might have, um, you know, repressed. So, so, so it's it's the same sort of the, the example I gave is a very behavioral exposure kind of paradigm. But what we're talking about here is a cognitive or inner exposure paradigm to your own inner kind of fears and urges.
1: So there are non-pharmacological ways of going of doing exposure therapy. If someone's yes. thinking, you know, maybe the the psychedelics are not for them. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. can go through that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Have you given any thought to potential drug interactions? Like can someone – I think in your trials you excluded people that were on SSRIs. Is there any potential for drug interactions between some of these other drugs that might be used within the the setting of treating someone for depression?
0: So we do that because of, you know, being very, very cognizant of wanting to control all the safety features – um, I think there has started to be a little bit of work where they, they, they've let some people through on SSRIs. And mostly what, what, what is found is the, the, the psychedelic experience actually doesn't work because their serotonin transmitters are already flooded with the SSRIs. So this is one of the reasons why we need, what, not only do we take them off the SSRIs, um, but we ask them for a four to six week washout period to let their kind of neurobiology return to its natural state. So when we give them the psilocybin, it's this immediate reaction.
1: Can that be difficult coming off SSRIs? It's
0: very difficult. And I mean, this is part of one of this is part of another reason why I think the TGA announcement was very premature. Really, um Thinking about the safety protocols for washing people, for tapering people off their SSRIs and washing them out. I mean, most psychiatrists have experience changing people on their medications, but not washing them out. And that 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 concerns me. You know, is it, it, it? It's not. And I'm not saying it's impossible. And I'm not saying um, that 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 people couldn't, you know, quickly gain experience. But we just need to think about it.
1: So you're you have one clinical trial that's underway now, or it's no? Soon we've, to be got,
0: we, we've got we've got so we've we, we've just about finishing a treatment resistant depression trial, which was our pilot trial, um, which we started pre-COVID, which is, and then that's when we um, uh, designed our big um, randomized control trial, which we've just started. Uh, we're just about to start an anorexia studies too. Um, and uh, we're additionally putting protocols and uh, funding applications um, with probably one of them funded for OCD.
1: And in terms of timing of some of those results, yeah. are we talking two, three, two, four, two, five three. years? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Something else that I've heard a lot of people talk about and yeah. have had conversations with people who have, who yeah. have done this is microdosing psilocybin. Yes. yeah. Is the research... Community looking at po- the the potential use of a smaller dose of psilocybin that doesn't lead to hallucinating the, the trip, so to speak, um, that could be taken more regularly and whether that affects the, mm. the brain?
0: Yeah, look, um, Jerry's out. Um, research is happening, I know, at the moment. I, I, a couple of my colleagues um, are currently looking into microdosing. I know. Um, based on sort of popular culture, I mean, that, that, that is a thing that, that, that's already happening um, in terms of, um, I guess, people doing it them, themselves and saying it does have a really positive um, uh, uh, influence for them and they feel better and they feel happier and, you know, better well-being and so on and so forth. I, I, I do wonder whether it's a placebo effect um, because I, I, I do think at those low doses, you're just not going to have the opening up of the brain. but when um, you
1: say low dose, we haven't spoken too much about dose, but in the trial what's a, a, tr- a trial dose versus what would be, I guess potentially used as a microdose? low,
0: low dose. So trial doses is about 25 milligrams of psilocybin. Um, these microdoses are you know uh, half a milligram, one milligram, so really low,, yeah, right. but daily.
1: Daily yeah, versus yeah. in the trial 25 milligrams
0: and a single day
1: single day and in your trials do you have one experience or are we you have re- two
0: two experiences two. four four weeks apart
1: four weeks apart That's yeah. the same across the, most of the, trials. the, the different trials yeah, yeah most of them. okay. I have some more questions on MDMA but are there is there anything that we have missed on psilocybin that you want to cover or anything that you you think is worth expanding on?
0: not obvious at the moment i'll ponder it and i'll come back to it
1: so mdma as we mentioned before slightly it's a different type of of psychedelic you said it perhaps isn't i guess a a a psychedelic in the same sense as some as some of these other more traditional ones like psilocybin or lsd Um, ketamine does that also fall into that
0: Ketamine's non-traditional too. Okay. Yeah, but ketamine does actually have a visual experience if right. you take too much. But that's birth.
1: that's also is there is there a drug in Australia that is ketamine or similar to ketamine that's approved?
0: As ketamine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and what's that indicated for? Treatment resistant depression.
1: Interesting. Yeah. How does that compare to psilocybin? Um, uh,
0: they're they're quite different because ketamine also has a glutamatergic effect, um, and and ketamine worries me a little bit as a, a, a potential intervention for um, mental health conditions. But I understand, you know, when people started to use ketamine, um, sort of ten years ago, it, people were desperate, you know.
1: What was that effect you said?
0: Well, it has a glutamatergic effect, so it's a different neurotransmitter. So we've got the different neurotransmitters in the brain. We have uh, dopamine and serotonin, as we've been talking about, and glutamate is, is, is another one. Glutamate is, uh, is, it permeates the whole of the brain, and it's a really important neurotransmitter in terms of cognition, um, and that's one of the reasons why ketamine worries me as a potential intervention for um, mental health conditions for a number of reasons, people with mental health conditions often have problems with their cognition. You talk to someone with depression or you know, um, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they have problems with their memory, they have problems with their planning, they have problems um, processing information at the same speed as people without mental health problems. So they it's called cognition. We know that ketamine has glu- these glutamatergic effects, so it's going to affect the people's cognition long term. When you say it's I've,
1: going to affect their cognition, as in if someone uses ketamine regularly, yes. more likely to have, say, dementia or something.
0: Yes, it's one. It, it was actually one of my first ever studies in, in in this psychedelic space. We were. I worked with people that had um, long term ketamine bu- abuse, and they had profound cognitive problems. So then, when we started to look at ketamine as then an, a treatment for mental health conditions, I, I it worries me. Mm-hmm. It worries me. Is
1: that dose in a clinical setting the same as the, the type of people that have been sort of abused? No, and that, ketamine? That, that, that,
0: that's, you know, the argument that some of my colleagues give me right. about ketamine. And there are two arguments that they give me. It's a controlled dose in a controlled setting and there's not, you know, that that they're not going to be able to get it on the street in terms of, well, some people might do, but, you know, mostly that, that, that's not that's not the case. But the second reason is, you know, these people have got such profound long-term mental health problems. Having a little pro- bit of a problem with their memory is probably better than them sitting there feeling depressed and suicidal all day. And I kind of get that, right. you
1: know. But compared to psilocybin, it's probably a little less focused in its action.
0: Exactly. It's a lot less focused in its action, right. yeah.
1: Why... Why the interest from your team to look at psilocybin over, say, LSD? Um, because they're similar.
0: There are similarities. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I haven't done a lot of um, reading into LSD. I'll be perfectly honest with you. The reason, the reason why I was so interested in psilocybin and I kind of focused all my reading and, and, and learnings about it was because of its very direct effects.
1: So MDMA has been indicated for PTSD. Mm -hmm. What is PTSD if someone has kind of heard that in conversation but is unsure of that by definition?
0: Post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is somebody that's had an extraordinarily stressful event. Could be, there's so many different things it could be. It could be a car accident. It could be a sexual assault. It could be a, a violent physical assault. It might be falling down the stairs. You know, there's a whole going to war, going to war. Um, Yeah, being being orphaned. I mean, there's trauma is different for everybody. Mm. You know, what what's a trauma for one person might not be a trauma for another person. That's that's also, but it for that particular individual, it was traumatic. Mm -hmm. And not only was it traumatic, is that they have flashbacks and it lives with them on a day to day basis. They can't escape from that trauma experience. And one of the things that we know about people with PTSD is they're hypervigilant. So, they become very, very anxious about their everyday environment and they're constantly looking out for a similar trauma or similar things. And then, as well, they have these flashbacks of the traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. So, they live in a world where they're anxious and then, because of that, can often get very depressed.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's the best practice kind of psychiatry? approach to ptsd
0: the primary intervention for people with ptsd um, is a little bit of pharmacolo- pharmacotherapy usually SSRIs to help with that depression um, but but in the most case it's psychotherapy and, and sort of two elements to the psychotherapy working through the traumatic experience um, and making sure that they understand that, that they were a victim and because often people feel very blamed um, and it's their own fault. But also um, the second part of it is ensuring that they become less vigilant in their everyday life and less anxious. So working through some traditional kind of anxiety um, recovery paradigms in the psychotherapy.
1: And how effective is that?
0: For a lot of people, it's really effective. Um, Where I do sort of kind of reserve a a bit of judgment is a lot of people that have been to war because they have had profound and continuous traumatic experiences. Um, And they just get very stuck in this this hypervigilant state.
1: And do the SSRIs make that process easier? Are they sort of prescribed to alleviate some pain and then it's the psychotherapy that's really doing the work work. to try and heal the the trauma and allow them to move through it?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's completely correct. And I think part of the problem with people that have had complex ongoing trauma is the SSRIs kind of dull our senses a little bit. Um, And so then working through some of that becomes quite challenging for people in the psychotherapy, and I think that's potentially why it doesn't work.
1: What do you think about the reputation of SSRIs? Because from the outside, so I I realise that this is not my domain, so I have no real strong opinion on it at all. So I'm interested from an expert, but I do look at the commentary online and you'll see... Uh, a lot of people saying that they're very overprescribed and sort of demonising them, and then you'll have others that are that are quite pro SSRI. So, how I'm do you feel middle about of
0: okay. middle of the road? Middle of the road. I I would I would agree that they're overprescribed. I I think the. Uh, uh, but then the, the counter to that is we've got a workforce crisis at the moment. We have got a profound shortage of psychologists. So if you are a GP and you've got you know hundreds of patients coming through your door every week and you know you can't get them into say a psychologist, what are you going to do? Because your hands are tied. So you've you've actually asked, you asked a question that's like packed with so many issues here. Um, and I, 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 do see that they really do help a large portion of the community. So, um, and unfortunately like any, um, of, um, our psychotropics, so this is the, the bunch of medications that we use for people with mental health problems. They've got profound side effects. So you, the issue that you're talking about here is got so many complexities to it. It's, it's not simple.
1: What are some of those? Most common side effects?
0: Uh, most common side effects is sexual dysfunction, um, um, gastric problems for some people. Um, fe- uh, they can make some people feel detached. Mm-hmm. Not Do they really.
1: affect cognition like ketamine? Uh,
0: no, not really. Okay. No, no.
1: But there will be some people who have taken them, who have had side effects, or who have gone through this protocol you're talking about with SSRIs and some psychotherapy. Yep. Uh, In an attempt to help improve the PTSD who have not um, sort of experienced the results that they would like to. Exactly. And that's where other tools, interventions come into the picture. Exactly. So MDMA currently being investigated. I think there's been a few trials out there, but what... Why is it promising, and, and I guess why is it more than promising? Why have the TGA? They've obviously been convinced enough by the yep. existing evidence to say, okay, for this indication, PTSD, where yep. we're permitting the use of MDMA.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, in comparison to the psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression, actually, the MDMA for PTSD is actually quite uh, is a few years ahead. So that's that's the indication that it doesn't worry me quite as much. Um, I think if uh, there is the appropriate safety parameters around it, um, the effects thus far for people with complex trauma and PTSD have actually been mostly positive. Um, perhaps one of the things that you might come to might, uh, is, is um, some of the issues that we've seen in the States with people crossing boundaries when they're on trips, especially in MDMA. There was some famous uh, cases where the, there was some sexual abuse um, actually in the therapeutic session by the, the therapist team with a participant.
1: Because the participant's under the influence
0: of MDMA and became a little amorous with one of the therapists, and the therapist didn't say no. Yeah, so we've got That to... probably,
1: though, is a good reason to have two therapists. That's
0: exactly. And and in the majority of cases, um, it's a male and female therapist. Um, some women with complex trauma prefer to women therapists because obviously the perpetrator has been male. Um, and I think that that's you know a, a useful kind of um, a, a deviation from the male female therapist. But I think where we can do, I think we need to stick with male and female therapists. Yeah.
1: With MDMA, you often hear about people who have used it recreationally and feel really shit the next couple of days. Yeah. And my lay understanding of that was. Well, you went out to a party and you just turned the tap up on your serotonin and you 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 kind of flushed it all out. You made the most of it over a few hours. Yep. You felt amazing. You flushed it all out. Yeah. And the cost of that is that over the next couple of days, you're going to have quite low levels and yep. it's gonna take some time to build up. Yep. So is is that something that clinically when you use this, you can kind of control for with regards to dose and yep. how you do it to avoid that?
0: I think it's. I think you've described it very articulately. I, I, I and I would agree with that. But also, imagine when people are going out and 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 taking these substances when they're pottying, they're often drinking as well. So you know, you've got the after effects of having a hangover and also poly substances. I mean, I think that there would be a lot of cases of people would take all kinds of stuff. Also, the thing that the MDMA that you get in clubs is mixed with the whole piles of rubbish as well that probably don't. Uh, have a very good interaction with your physiology. But when we're doing this in terms of clinical trials and so, therapeutically, this is pure MDMA. Um, the, there's not going to be any rubbish in it that's going to you know, be bad for your physiology. Um, and also, uh, yeah, the dosing is very controlled and we've got ourselves to a dose where you're not going to feel quite so shocking the next day.
1: How do you see this looking over the next five to ten years with more results from trials? Do you see uh, the, the TGA kind of changing the way that what they've currently approved? Is it going to be, uh, you can walk down the street and you'll see you know psychedelic kind of therapy centers and you can just walk in and a psychiatrist will lead you through a kind of session. What do you think the, the future of this space will look like?
0: I guess no one's asked me that. Um, I guess I just focus on doing that, on the research at the moment. Look, I think, yeah, there are going to be some dedicated clinics, you know, um, and I and I think that this is uh, an amazing time to be working in this space, to be making a profound difference. Um, I think... Um, the, the the scheduling has become such a controversial issue at the moment I think it would just be really glad to I'd be really glad to be over this phase and just into the next phase where we all come together and are working in the same space I think that that's one of the things that the TGA decision did which makes me feel really uncomfortable that they didn't engage with local experts so it's just making us um have to work really hard and really quick Um, were they
1: aware of your clinical trial that you're running
0: yeah 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 um and 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 that that's why kind of upset uh, has upset me so much because we are doing the work that they need and we are doing the right thing um, and I, I mean, I imagine you've interviewed lots of people over the years. You know how hard scientists work. We work so hard and then giving us all of this extra pressure to come up with safety parameters and to come up with training protocols and to think about how this is going to work in, with the general public and to think about how we're going to work then with PBS and, 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 and really pushes before we've even got the right data for all of these entities. Has just been quite stressful the last few months. Um, so yeah, it'd be nice in the next few years to not be quite so stressed about it and actually work towards something that will be of value.
1: And you, you've spoken to this about what you're concerned or most concerned by or worried about, but I mean, clearly you have some, some large concerns. Are you, are you concerned over the next a few years before that, we have more information that there are going to be people in society that are having bad trips, bad experiences. And, and some of this will be a result of the way the environment set up or therapists not being appropriately trained.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm most concerned about. And then I'm most concerned that, that, that then it becomes like the scheduling gets, you know, more stringent again. And that's not ever what I wanted. And to be honest, like I did. I did want it to be down scheduled to an eight, but an eight for clinical trials, not an eight for authorised prescribers, because going from a nine to an eight does make things easier for a, as a clinical trialist. Um,
1: so you can't use a substance that's in nine as a in a clinical trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, can. We
0: can. It's just so much more paperwork. Right. So much more paper. Paperwork. Yeah. Um, so you know. Uh, I think down scheduling it was not the worst thing in the world. It was this down scheduling it with this really strange, and I've it, this is this is unprecedented too. That they, you know, they they said that that then you know authorized prescribers could do this. The other thing, I mean, that is spoken about a lot uh, in the in the community is decriminalizing um, some of these compounds, and I would be I would highly support that because then then we're not going to have the underground space.
1: Yeah, talk someone through that who has never heard that before because I remember when I hadn't heard that, I was like, what do you mean? decriminalized and I couldn't get my head around it and then I listened to people talk about it. And I was yeah. like, okay, that this there there is a lot of sense to this argument. I'll I'll, I'll listen a little further. Yeah. Are you talking about legalizing all drugs like heroin, cocaine, everything is just a, a free for all? Or
0: <laughs> I, I, I think I think my parents would be I would have something to say <laughs> if I was talking about decriminalizing heroin. Um no I'm talking about decriminalizing very small quantities of some of these compounds like like. psilocybin, um, MDMA, because if if people are so desperate to get hold of it, they're going to do it anyway.
1: And they're not going to pay $20,000. And they're
0: not going to pay $20,000, but they're also going to go underground and then they don't know what's in it. And that really concerns me.
1: So you'd like someone to be able to at least go and test it somewhere? Or you're yep. saying if you decriminalise it and then you you have it manufactured in controlled
0: settings? Yes, yes, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Um, because when we've seen countries that have done that, and the one that I'm most familiar with is the Netherlands. I grew up in the UK and I saw them decriminalise a whole pile of things in, 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 in the Netherlands. And just... Uh, a whole array of issues went away. Um, and people that were going to get hold of it always did get hold of it. But what also happened was at least then they were safe.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you shared that because I think that given your kind of public stance on this, yeah, maybe some people have jumped to the conclusion that you're trying to resist it no. and that you're you, – you don't want these therapies available to people that potentially can benefit.
0: No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I just want. People have you felt like that though? I have felt like that, and I felt I've had some really abusive comments the last few months. That that that, that on the that,
1: emails, um, or Twitter emails or emails
0: and Twitter and all sorts of things. And I, you know, and I try not to take these things to heart because I know at the end of the day, I'm doing what I can do to
1: still keeps you up at night, though it
0: does. It, and my key thing, and I think I've said it multiple times, I want people to be safe. You know, I want people to have access to interventions that are safe. We can only make sure that they're completely safe by doing the appropriate research. And I think we're premature in our research with these. But if if you're not going to wait for the research, at least let it be safe in another environment. And I can't control that environment anyway, but at least have some ability for some safety parameters around it. And I think decriminalizing, although it's not it's, it's not. Ultimately, it's not what I would really want, but it's it's better than than where we are at the moment.
1: How do you think the companies that are either a manufacturing or distributing these drugs, um, or those that were lobbying the TGA, would feel about decriminalisation? Hmm.
0: Interesting. Don't know. Yeah, don't know.
1: Because I guess there is also, I mean, there probably is a view out there that. Okay, psilocybin's been around for a long time. It's, it's, it's a compound in mushrooms, and here comes here comes big farmer getting their hands on it and controlling it and making it in a synthetic form. Um, but perhaps that's a, that's a question for another day. But that also does um, make me think, as a researcher, the changes to these TGA regulations are, I guess, positive in the sense that it might attract more funding.
0: I hope so. I really do hope so because I think that there's been, because of the very polarizing opinions in the general public, our big um, funding agencies like the National Health and Medical Research Council were very against funding um, uh psychedelic research for a number of years they did have one initiative a couple of years ago where they released a small very small amount of money uh, which several of us did get some some funding for um, but it's still seen as very outer edge kind of research um, I, I mean and I have to be honest I've benefited from the, the public opinion at, at, and the movement in this space. My, our large trial is funded by a pharmaceutical company um, and yeah, yeah, have conflict of interest for that, but it's an investigator initiated trial. So I, for those of you, your audience that don't understand what that means, it's not a sponsored trial, Um, the, the pharmaceutical company didn't come to me and say, will you run this trial for me? And they'd already said what it was. I went to them and said, I've got this great idea. Would you fund it? Okay.
1: And even if the results were not positive, they
0: they have no role in it whatsoever. Over
1: whether it's published or not.
0: Exactly.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about some of these other compounds and feel free to make this a quick comment here as we get to the end, but like DMT or Ibogaine, are there researchers around the world also looking at those?
0: I forgot to tell you about our DMT. So yeah, we have some DMT. Um, I have a wonderful um, uh, young postdoc from London, uh, Marlene Utag, who is uh, joining us later this year. Um, She's done quite a lot of work on DMT. Um, What is DMT? Um I'm going to say I can't remember uh, how it, the very long about 50 letter word <laughs> <laughs> um is But pronounced. it's a,
1: it's a it's a compound that affects the brain in some capacity. Yes,
0: yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's a it's another serotonergic compound um and I, I, yeah, I can't remember actually, right. to be honest. Um, but yeah, so um, there has been some initial work looking at DMT um, in the uh, for depression, uh, but it's very, very early stages. Um, and what Marlin's going to come and do is, we have a um, a brain imaging center at Swinburne, and she's going to actually have a look at what it does. Yeah.
1: Okay. So more to come. More to come on that. Yeah. If. If someone's tuned into this and they either feel depressed or they have been diagnosed with depression, or perhaps they haven't been diagnosed with depression, they're feeling depressed, what are the first steps? Conscious that just from yeah. a responsibility point of view, here Absolute. if someone's listening, uh, yeah, like, where absolutely. do they go? What are the best resources? So,
0: um, I became a bit of a public face during COVID because I was constantly spruiking happiness and telling telling people how to use um, the natural world to be happy when we're all stuck at home, um, and. Uh, I mean, the first thing to do is obviously talk to your friends and family, talk to, you, to them about your experiences. Sharing is a big weight off people's shoulders. If you still feel once you've shared your experience with loved ones. So one of the things that happens when you share your experiences with loved, your loved ones is you increase your oxytocin, MDMA, you know, it's only the natural increase of oxytocin, but it actually does help b- boost your spirits. Um, if you have tried things like long walks, vitamin D really helps with, um, in boosting your mood. If you've tried things like exercise, um, the adrenaline that goes through your body can help with serotonergic transmission and so that also helps. So if you eat a good diet and not eating terrible food, I think all the things that you probably know about, you know do the best things for your physiology that you possibly can and you've talked to loved ones and you're still not feeling great, go and see your GP, you know? Um, they are very experienced at talking to people about, their mo- about your mood. Um, and um, uh, if you don't want, don't think you want to take any kind of pharmaceutical intervention, and it's, this is the first time you started to experience these feelings, they can talk to you about seeing a counsellor or a psychologist, um, talk to you about potential um, support groups would be another one. You know, it depends where you are in your journey, I right. guess. Would
1: it, would it be routine that someone would be prescribed with a, an antidepressant and not do therapy?
0: I would hope not. However, I do know, and I talked to you about this before, we've got a real public mental health crisis at the moment. We have a massive shortage of psychologists. We really do. Uh, The waiting lists are really profound at the moment. Um, So I guess it depends. But trying to
1: get your hands on therapy from from what we were talking about earlier seems to be, I guess, the course of action required to kind of really get the healing.
0: Critical. And look... One of the things I recommended, especially during COVID, if you can, you know, if if you're going round and round and round and you're on wait list for psychologists and psychologists, there are other um, I guess, allied health professionals that do provide some psychological support um, that you might that you might even go, oh, of course that is. Yoga, mindfulness. Okay. That that is tapping into some of our inner, um, self-compassion that we need to really, um, work through when we're, when we're feeling, um, sad. So mindfulness, uh, meditation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I might pull together a few resources and I'll put them in the show notes for anyone who wants to, to look into that. Thank you so much, Susan. it has been fantastic. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, if, Anyone wants to connect with you online or keep an eye on the trials and the results, yes. where should we send them?
0: You can send them to me at Swinburne. So I um, I have a webpage at Swinburne. Um, I also am um, promoting an uh, email um, for the clinical trial. So it's 3pap at swin.edu.au um and that's the clinical trial but um also i have a personal email at swim and people can give me an email too okay
1: and you're on the twitter
0: i am on twitter (laughs) Mm. i'm not very good at it most of my team are better than me but
1: yes okay well all of that will be in (laughs) the the show notes and for those who are watching on video that will show up on screen wonderful thank you so much for your time today
0: no problem it's been great thanks
1: there we go friends Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.